Welcome to Conlangery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley, and with me in Los Angeles, California, we have a professor emeritus of the University of Southern California and the creator of Natvi and Barsoomian, Paul Fromer. Got it, my Elon. How are you, buddy? How are you doing? And... Um, of course, everyone understands why Paul is on here, but uh, we, it's really exciting to have you on because, uh, you know, Avatar was like a very important event for, for like Conlangers because, I mean, before that, I I actually want to check here. Because um, before that, I think the only major motion pictures that were really big in the zeitgeist that had conlangs in them were Star Trek with, uh, with Klingon. And it was sort of, you know, it's still considered sort of nerdy and geeky and, and, and like a, 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 a ways away, but uh, a ways away from the mainstream, but I think Avatar brought it more. And the thing that I remember when Avatar was coming out was that the Navi was actually talked about on Language Log, which is a popular linguistics blog. So it was getting some some uh, attention from academic linguists in a way that Conlang's didn't necessarily get. Um, so I want to ask you, when you started constructing Natvi, um, you know, you were a professor already at that time? Um, I was a professor, but interestingly enough, not in the linguistics department. So I, right. um, I actually have a PhD in linguistics from USC, University of Southern California. Uh, which I got in 1981. But then actually I didn't go into linguistics professionally at that time. I decided I wanted to see what the business world was like. And so I had a sojourn uh, at a Los Angeles corporation for over 10 years. I became a vice president. Uh, And then back in 1995, I had the opportunity to come back to the university and I discovered that there was such a thing as business communication. And so I figured, well, Mm -hmm. uh, linguistics sure sounds like communication and I do have this experience in business. So I uh, had an interview with the chair of the department at USC and convinced him that I knew something about the subject. And so I joined the faculty of um, the department of business communication at Various times, it's also been called the uh, the Center for Management Communication, uh, and I wound up mostly teaching writing. Uh, the course I specialized in yeah. was uh, called Advanced Writing for Business, which actually was a pretty good fit for me, and so I was pretty happy there. Uh, and in two thousand five, I actually became chair of my department, and so that was that was uh, a very eventful year for me. Because that was also the year that this email was forwarded to me by a friend and colleague 
in the linguistics department, Ed Finnegan, who actually was a professor of mine and turned out to be a co-author of mine. Uh, and the email was from James Cameron's production company looking for a linguist who could create a science, a language for a science fiction film. At the time, we didn't know anything about Avatar. It was codenamed Project 880 for some reason. So, um, okay. so Ed looked at the email and said, hmm, this sounds like Paul. Because, see, the two of us had worked together on a linguistics workbook. It's called Looking at Languages. It was pretty successful. It went into six editions. Uh, and it's essentially a problem book for students in an introductory linguistics course. I mean, I don't have to tell you, uh, linguistics is kind of like math in the sense that you can't just read about it. You have to do it. You have to actually play with data and yeah. problems and so on. So it, it was an, an awful lot of fun um, to put together problems in about 30 different languages uh, in you know phonology and syntax and morphology and semantics and so on. As it turns out, one of those problems uh, that I had constructed was actually based on Klingon. I had learned just enough Klingon to be able to construct a syntax problem uh, with Klingon data for undergraduate, undergraduate linguistics students. And so this already existed in this book, which was a physical object. And so when I saw the email, I said, I really want to do this. And I essentially applied for the job. And I uh, wrote a very enthusiastic letter to James Cameron's production company explaining who I was and, and sending them a copy of the book. Uh, I also had a little bit of uh, artificial data uh, in uh, the historical linguistics chapter of the book. Uh, it was a problem in, uh, in comparative reconstruction. I, I came, came up with data in the speak to me family which was kind of, but it was hardly a complete Conway. Anyway, uh, I was contacted in a week or 10 days, said, uh, why don't you come in and, and talk to, talk to Jim. So I wound up having this absolutely extraordinary hour and a half in James Cameron's office, just the two of us talking for 90 minutes about his vision for the film. And, uh, what he was looking for in the language and so on and so forth. And it went pretty well. And at the end of it, uh, we stood up, shook hands, and he said, welcome aboard. So that was how I became uh, involved in Avatar. It was pretty wild. And something totally, yeah. it, it, I mean, it, it, I, although I, I, I think I had a pretty good background for it, and, and it was something I really wanted to do. In a sense, it was totally serendipitous. It just kind of fell into my lap. If, if Ed Finnegan had not forwarded me this email, I would never be here right now. So it worked out well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's how it tends to go in uh, show business stuff, yeah. right? You have to have some connection, but uh, that's really interesting. The way that you, you, the way that you got the job mm -hmm. and the way that it, it w worked out. Um, uh, so, so like you, you're in a, a communications department, mm -hmm. um, but like, how did, how did like colleagues react to you? Like going in and doing this, um, colleagues in my department, which was a business communication department, were fascinated by it. 
And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, as long as it didn't interfere with my with my day job, so to speak, right? Because I remained <laughs> I remained chair of my department, and during those crucial years, from 1995 uh, through 1998, I, I I still was was chair of my department, chair of an academic department at a major university, and had a lot of responsibilities. Um, interestingly, at the time, there didn't seem to be a lot of interest from the linguistics department because I, I think things have changed. Okay, you know, Avatar came out in two, the first film came out in 2009. And, uh, you know, Carl Langing, at least in terms of academic linguistics, was a little bit like Roger Dangerfield, right? It didn't get no respect. People, people I think, considered it frivolous and uh, unacademic and something that they would never put on their resume. And so there was a bit of a, a I don't know, a supercilious attitude towards it. But I think things have changed. I mean, remarkably, I'm sure you're aware of this, uh, there are now valid academic courses in real linguistics departments at very good universities in constructed languages. I mean, I've, yeah. I've, now, I've yeah. now spoken to uh, uh, Angela Carpenter's class. She's a linguist um, at Wellesley. And she's been giving a class now in constructed languages for quite a few years. And it's one of the most, if not the most popular course in the linguistics department, most, one of the most popular courses in the entire university. There's also always a long wait list. And um, part of the task of students in this course is to actually come up with their own conlang. I don't know how far they have to get, but at the end of the, of, of the course, they have to do a presentation to the class on their conlang, you know, and, and right. pre- present the data. So, so yeah, so I, I mean, I think academically it's become much more of a, of a respected thing. Yeah. I mean, I, I have seen that too. I, I remember within the community, people talking about how they'd have negative reactions even from, from linguists when, when they were talking about from academic linguists, even if they are in academia themselves about, having a hobby of conlanging. Uh-huh. And when I was in grad school, most people were just like interested in, in what I was doing and, mm-hmm. and, and the, the fact that I did this as, as a hobby. Um, maybe some people weren't like super into it, yeah. <laughs> but uh, like some older professors weren't like into it, but people didn't really have negative reactions anymore. I think, um, like 2005, I want to know, like, how aware were you of, like, the online conlanging community? And how, how did that, because I know that now you are sort of connected a little bit more to, like, the, the, the broader conlanging community, yeah. too. You gave a talk at CopyCon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you know, you, you you've had events with uh, David Peterson and he's came out of the conlang community. So like, how did your connection develop with that and were you aware of it before Avatar? Yeah. I mean, in a word, I was totally unaware of it. I mean, I, I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was really not uh, a conlanger prior to not uh, I, 
I had thought about, you know, what it would be like to construct a language, but I, I had never actually done it. And uh, I was unaware of the, of the existing Conlanguin community. Now, since then, of course, I've developed relationships. Um, I know David pretty well. Uh, I know Mark Alcran pretty well. I know Christine Schreier pretty well. And, um, and you know, it, it's, it's, the, the, these are wonderful people. And, and uh, th- there are people in the Conlanguin community who really have become genuinely close friends. And that that that's something that's an added plus for me. Um, Mark, David, and I are sometimes invited as a trio to kind of speak together as a panel. Uh, we did that twice, I think, at uh, UCSD, uh, uh, University of California, San Diego. Um, we were up in Calgary at some point. So yeah, so. Um, uh, those connections are things that developed along the way, but it's been it's been fascinating, and it's also been fascinating for me to learn uh, what what is one of the most interesting hobbies or interests, I guess, among um, among people who are interested in language, uh, and also uh, you're probably I, I I hope you're aware of the documentary film that Britton Watkins did, Conlanging the. Yes. Tongues. yes. Um, full disclosure: I, I'm an, an associate producer on the film. So is uh, so is David. So is Mark, and we all uh, really enjoy taking part of that. And one of the wonderful things about that film is that, although it talks about you know the, the professional con languages like like me and David and Mark, uh, it really concentrates on the part of the iceberg that's much more massive and below the surface, the people who were doing it out of sheer love, you know, not necessarily getting compensation for it, but just doing extraordinarily creative things and beautiful things with Conlanging. So uh, it's becoming more of a thing. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, By the way, if, if people who are watching this have not seen that documentary, go, go search for it. I, I have interviewed Britton Watkins, Back, that's in the audio episodes or oh. in the audio archives of the show, and I was interviewed for for the Conlanging documentary, but I didn't make the cut for the feature, except for like a brief shat, a brief like splash of showing me recording the podcast. Uh-huh. But I was in the special features. But cool. anyway, <laughs> not about me. This 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 episode's not about me. It's about you. Um, in terms of yeah, so you you've you've grown more connected to the community. Um, another thing I, I want to talk about is like these conlangs for big film properties. You know, have developed their own communities, and Notvi. The the interesting thing about Notvi is like Mark Okrand wrote um, books books about Klingon. And, you know, David has, like, done all kinds of, like, posts on social media, and he's done um, a little bit of documentation of some of the languages. Mm-hmm. For Natvi, I think the first documentation was, like, fans reverse engineering, <laughs> right? There was, there was something which was totally astonishing to me. Uh, 
the, the so the first Avatar film opened. Uh, I forget the exact day. It opened on a Friday in December, and a few days prior to that, I get an email, a long email, written entirely in Navi. And as you might imagine, it blew me away because I said, where in the world did this come from? And it was pretty darn good. It wasn't 100% perfect, but it was remarkably good. Well, it turns out this came from Britain. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't recall if he worked independently or he worked with some other people. But there had been uh, – there, there was a certain amount of information which could be – put together from things that had already appeared online. So, for example, um, I had done this um, interview for um, language. What, what, what was the name of that? Of that um, okay, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now. But um, a certain amount of information about the structure and about the phonology and so on had already appeared. And crucially, an incomplete an error-filled glossary had been leaked online. I don't know where that came from. Oh. But it was something like about 500 items uh, which people somehow had gotten access to. And so putting all this together from what I had said and from what, what you could find in various interviews that I had done, with the glossary, people were able to deconstruct a fair amount. I mean, not, not everything, but a fair amount about the line. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, since then, of course, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of documentation, and some of the the things that people have done in the fan community are really remarkable. There, there are a couple of uh, extraordinary dictionaries. The most extraordinary of which is called an annotated dictionary of Navi. Uh, it's put together by um, a German fellow named um, Stefan Müller. And it looks like something that comes from Oxford University Press. I mean, it's utterly professional. And every oh, yeah. entry not only has what you might expect, the definitions and the transcriptions and IPA and uh, all sorts of information about, about uh, morphology and such, but it also has examples, canonical examples from just about everything uh, that has appeared from the movies themselves, from my blog, uh, and from other reliable sources to show how a particular lexical item is used in a sentence. And it's extraordinarily useful. I, I turn to it literally every single time that I'm thinking about Navi. So, I mean, the fact that people have put together this kind of stuff really uh, out of the sheer love of it is just extraordinary to me. It's just a tremendous honor. Oh, so you use fan created materials like the as as part of like if you're looking at I don't know there's all the sequels are in production or whatever yeah, yeah. well I mean uh, if, if if I if I want to remind myself how I've used uh -huh. a particular word okay a shorthand okay. way of doing an easy way to, of doing that is to go to the uh, annotated dictionary, look up the word and look at the example. Right. Now, the example came, came from me. Okay. Of course. But, but they compiled but it. But they've <laughs> compiled it. And so, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really quite, quite remarkable. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really amazing. Um, 
<laughs> I wish I could have people keep track of my notes of my languages for me. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah. that would be an excellent. But I'm. I mean, and that's the kind of thing that you have to have if you have a real language is, is like databases of examples yeah. in order to, you know, go back on it and make sure that you're being consistent. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, mean, I mean, consistency is obviously a very big issue, especially for a language that's been around this long. Yeah. And right. uh, I, I have an, an active fan base who uh, are sometimes very on top of things. And I mean, my, my blog has been going for quite a few years now. And to be perfectly honest, there are times when I will make a pronouncement on the blog and someone will write in the comments very politely and respectfully. Uh, they will say, Cario Paul, which is my title that they gave me. It's called Teacher Paul. Uh, they say, well, last week you said that this word is used in this particular structure. But back in 2012, you said it should go in that in that direction. Okay. And so I have to sometimes say, oh, dear. Okay. So uh, what do I do now? So, I mean, there are times when I can kind of save it and say, okay, well, the thing is you have to look at the context because actually the two contexts are a little bit different. And it's perfectly legitimate to have it go this way in this context, this, you know, this Active right. environment and that way in that context. Or I can say, um, yeah, well, that was early Navi back in 2012, and we've since learned more about the language. And so now it's this way. You know, so so there, 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 are, there are ways to get around it. But uh, it's, it's just to say that consistency is crucial, and all this stuff exists and is canon and has to mesh with you know, whatever has been done. Yeah. Now, for the shape of water, uh -huh. I I think I remember reading that you created a a separate a, a different dialect of not V, but not a separate language for for the the other clan, right? right? Yeah. And so um, again, this was a, a direction that I got from James Cameron, saying that there's going to be a different, actually a different, even physiological type of not V, because the reef people. Uh, look a little bit different from the forest people that we met in the original film. Uh, the coloring is a little different. Right, they have webbing on their, on their feet and so on. And um, they do speak a different dialect of Navi. Now, uh, it's not a different language because, according to the storyline of the film, the forest people and the reef people can communicate with no problem. And so it had to be uh, essentially, you know, you might say parallel to the differences between British and American English, that kind of thing. So I, you know, I, I looked at all the, the sub-modules, you might say, of language, you know, the phonetics and the phonology, the morphology, the syntax, and so on. Uh, the most striking differences are in the phonology because there are times in reef navi, so it's now reef navi, which is a new dialect, and forest Navi, which is the original dialect that we heard. So um, there are a number of phonological differences. Uh, one is that the adjectives, which have gotten so much attention, you know, the, the uh, and the, um, uh, 
those are realized in certain linguistic environments, certain positions in a word, in reef navi as voiced stops. So there are times when um, a, a in forest navi comes out as a b in reef and so on. Uh, it's a very surfacey kind of phenomenon because um, uh, there are reasons to think that underlyingly the objectives are still there, but if you want to think of, of, of rule ordering, which is an old-fashioned way to think of it, uh, this comes very late in the derivation, so to speak. So that's one difference. Another difference is that the difference in the vowel system. So uh, the vowel system of the original Natmi dialect is somewhat asymmetrical. It's a seven-vowel system. And there's a, a distinction between the high front vowels. And so there's a tense lax distinction. Um, there's e versus i. Okay. Just as we have in English, you know, seat versus sit and so on. But there's no parallel distinction in the high back vowel. There's no u versus u. Okay. Well, it turns out that in Vietnamese, there is that distinction. So they have an eight vowel system. And the u and u, which apparently come from, you know, where the, the assumptions they come from apparent language, uh, in Forest, not be those have merged, but in reef, not be they've remained distinct. And so this means that if you speak forest, not be, and you want to try to speak the reef dialect, then you have to actually know for every lexical item, is the you in my dialect, u or a, uh, in reef, not be. So what I had to do is I had to go through essentially the entire vocabulary and look at every word that had a U and determine if it was going to be U or U. Uh. The notation for U uh is a U with a, with a grave accent. So yeah, I, that was kind I, of I was going to ask you like how you did that. Did you, did you just go and just decide word by word? Because like it's like in in sort of in vogue right now for conlangers to like do historical linguistic stuff but it's easier to start from a proto language and then do the evolution in two directions but then you had to like reverse engineer what the proto form was so i mean essentially yeah i i did uh have to decide kind of on a on a word by word basis but there were there were some guidelines too so um the lax version the uh does not appear word finally. Now, that's not true with the front vowels, because for the front vowels, the, the, the high front vowels, you can have both, uh, both tense and lax vowels at the end of a word. Or, or uh, like, for example, we have a contrast between, um, between me and me. Those are two different words in not me. But, but there, there's no parallel concept, contract contrast between, say, something like lu and le at, at the end of a word. Okay. So um, that was one sort of shortcut. I knew that if a u would come uh, came at the end of a word, it has to be one variety and not the other. But I also didn't want it to be predictable. I didn't want people to think right. that, oh, if it's a close, if, if it's a, uh, if it's a word with one syllable and, and it's u in a, in, a, in a closed syllable, then it's always uh. No. So there are contrasts right. between those two. So, yeah, so it's not predictable. And in fact, you have to, you have to give special attention to every lexical item. 
you, you, you did want it to be a historical phonemic distinction. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So, 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 uh, it, it is definitely a phonemic distinction in reef, not reef. And of course, going from a distinction to a merger is easy. Going from a merger to a distinction is much harder. Because then you have to know, you right. know my, my, is, is this merger in my language, which direction does it go in the language where they're distinct? And so that's right. But, but, but I, mean, I mean, nevertheless, at least up to now, we've been focusing more on the forest dialect, which is the one that people are most familiar with. Now, there, there are lexical differences, too. You know, there, there are certain words that are used in one more than in the other. There are certain vocabulary items that are, uh, that are specific to one dialect and another. And that's still in the process of being developed. So it's now there is, you, you, there was someone else did the sign language for Shape of Water. Yeah. Correct. Uh -huh. Did you have any involvement in that or was that just a totally separate project? That was a totally separate project. Yeah. Um, okay. Guy is great. And, and we, uh, we, got along well together, CJ, but, but we, uh, we didn't have any contact. And, and that was deliberate on the part of uh, James Cameron. He, he didn't feel that there need, needed to be a, a, a connection, and uh, it wasn't. So he kind of went, went, went in, in his own direction. Okay. All right. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so you've done you, – you did not be mm – -hmm. And I'm sure you're going to continue doing Not V for however many sequels James Cameron can fund. And video uh, <laughs> games. And there's a big video game uh, yeah. uh, that's coming out at the end of this year, which has some of the language in it. So that's been fun to work on, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, have, you've, been, you've been working on translation. Have you worked with the voice actors for the video game? Oh, yeah. At all? Very much so. Oh, good. Okay. Um, you also did the Barsoomian language uh -huh. uh, for for the John Carter movie. I did, uh, which I saw. There wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of Barsoomian no. in it. There was not a whole a lot of Barsoomian in it. The, 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 that was that was a very different kind of assignment because um, right. But well, for one thing, of course, uh, there's a, a series of. I think seven novels by Edgar Rice Burroughs yeah. in the Barsoom series. Uh, and he had come up with about 400 vocabulary items, right? Oh. And he, had, yeah. So, so those already existed. I, uh, I did not have to read all seven novels. In fact, what, what was a, a, a tremendously useful time saver was this. There is this book. Guide to Barsoom. Oh, okay. It's an encyclopedia of Barsoom. And uh, John Flint Roy was the extraordinarily dedicated compiler of all this information about, about the whole series. And just about every word in the books is, is in that little encyclopedia. So that was a, a very useful resource. But the thing is, there were words, but there was no syntax whatsoever. There was precisely one sentence which consisted of one word, sock, which meant jump. That was it. <laughs> so that meant that... But that means... 
Yeah, that means you have an idea of what an imperative can look oh, like. There, there right? you go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so the uh, the the syntax and the phonology was completely up to me. Now, one big guiding principle for that was that according to the first novel, I, I actually read the, read the at least the first two in in the series. Um, yeah, John Carter says that the Martian language was so easy that I think in a matter of a week he was able to express himself with no problem and understand it. I mean. Look, no language is that easy, but that told me that, you know, don't make it a complicated syntax. Don't make it really, really simple. And so that was that was sort of a time saver, too. Uh, what what I had to do was kind of look at the words, which, you know, and there are no recordings. I don't know how this supposed to sound and figure out exactly what what he was talking about. So, for example, if you see a CH. Okay, well, it, it could be ch, but it could also be sh mm-hmm. uh, as in machine, or it could be k as in chorus, or it could be ch as in bach. You know, so what exactly does he mean by ca? So I, I had to make all these decisions along the way. But it, it, uh, it turned out, okay, I mean, uh, it's been a long time. Did Yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, was the... Uh... What I want to ask is, like, was it clear that there there could be a consistent pattern out of the words, or were they kind of haphazard? No, and you had yeah. to do a lot of there, stuff. There was really no 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 consistent pattern. But I mean, Edgar Asperger was not a linguist, right? And he came up right. with very Englishy kind of stuff. You know, things that. That, pe- that English speakers would have no problem pronouncing. And uh, there's some cliches, so there's an awful lot of th, you know, there's, there's, there's thora, that kind of thing, which which he, he must have thought sounded exotic or something, I don't know. But uh, that, that, that wasn't too difficult to, uh, to put together in a, in a consistent way. Uh, I, I really only went uh, as far as the needs of the movie. So I, 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 I right. didn't I didn't really expand the vocabulary, and since um, I think it's fair to say that the film was not a huge success, and there weren't going to be any <laughs> any sequels, I, I really didn't didn't do too much more with it. Yeah, when you say that, I I do have to say, like my gripe with that movie was they actually set up John Carter as a guy who learns languages because he speaks, I don't know. Uh, an indigenous language in the in the beginning of what is it like Blackfoot or something? Yeah, you're right. There is something in there. Yeah, I, I, I forget which and then, language it is. Yeah, yeah. But then instead of utilizing the language you made, they have it for a few lines at the beginning, and then he drinks this magic juice, and he automatically it's all in English. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I think there's a strong tendency among. Uh, directors and producers to feel that a lot of the intended audience doesn't want to read subtitles and they really want to hear their own language. Um, I did do another language, which you're you're probably not aware of. (laughs) Are you aware of um, a movie um, for, I guess the audience was basically, what are they called, tweens? It was called Aliens in the Attic. Are you familiar with that? 
I think I've heard the name, but I haven't seen it. So um, I, I actually saw it on, on, on cable just about a week ago or so. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it in a long time. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a very lighthearted sort of comedy aimed at a very teenage audience. And the premise is that I think four little aliens land on a rooftop of a house in Maine, and they're about to take over the planet. And uh, the human race is rescued by this bunch of teenagers. Okay. So that, right. that's kind of the premise. But um, since they are aliens, it was thought that they have to have their own language. And so I got the gig, and I developed actually I, I thought it was kind of a kind of a nice language for them and we went as far as working with voice actors and uh, they they hired some very oh, oh, I should mention these were CGI aliens and so there weren't any actual right. actors but you still had to have voice actors to to voice the language and it uh, it was kind of fun it was going well I remember meetings with the uh, with the writers and director to see exactly what the language should sound like, and you know it shouldn't. We did, they didn't want it to sound too much like one language, one human language, or another because they thought that you know there might be some uh, negative feedback about that. So we settled on what the language should sound like, and so on and so forth. Anyway, uh, then the stuff was done. I was never was actually on set for for the actual um, shootings. I don't even remember. But my point is, my job was done. They said, thank you. They sent me a check, and that was it. So the, <laughs> the movie actually came out, and I said to myself, I should go see the movie. So I did. Right. And it was, I went during uh, during the day, on a weekday, and it was playing in a local theater. And I remember there were five people in the audience. It was um, a father and a young child, another father and another young child, and me. So the three of us, the, the five of us are in the theater and the movie's starting. And I'm waiting for the aliens to land and I'm waiting to hear my language. And so the aliens land and they immediately speak English. There wasn't one, there wasn't one word of the language that I had come up with left in the movie. So, I mean, I, I, although no one had contacted me, it was very clear that uh, after I was involved, someone made the decision, you know, probably our intended audience is not going to want to read subtitles. And so they decided everything should be in English. It was kind of too bad. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that's movie making. They make decisions at the last minute or yeah. at any any point in time so uh for some reason they just decided they would they would scrap the language yeah that's that's unfortunate but it happens um it's it's interesting to me like you are at like one point in this timeline of conlangs becoming more popular going back to like avatar you had i mean you had klingon was like the first big movie con like there were some before that there was like land of the lost mm -hmm. and all that and then we have you know a few smaller projects and you have avatar and then 
not too long after that, Avatar is 2009, right? Yeah. And then not too long after that, you have Game of Thrones. And then it starts to get into a pattern of more and more properties are getting these proper conlangs. Like, um, how do you view your place in that? And how do you have you seen, since you've gotten in it, how have you seen things changing in terms of conlangs getting incorporated in these properties? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's become pretty clear that if there's going to be any sort of alien race speaking a language, it can't just be gibberish. I mean, I mean, and, and I, I think that was probably true ever since Klingon, that people are going to expect it to be a well-constructed, linguistically valid, viable language. And so at this point, I yeah. think producers and directors know that, they're gonna, that if there's going to be any sort of alien speech, you've got to hire uh, someone who knows what, what he or she is doing. And, and, and so, right. and so, you know, there, there are gigs that open up, uh, inevitably, uh, I think if it's a, you know, a major, uh, a major property, uh, producers and directors are going to go with a known quantity if they, if they can. And so, you know, there, there are, and, and, but, but I mean, this is true, not only in conlanging, but true in the world in general, right? I mean. It, track records mean something and connections mean something. But uh, there are still opportunities. I mean, the, the, you know, the uh, Language Creation Society, of course, has a, a, a job board, job listing, and I think some people have become aware of that. And uh, I guess there are, hopefully there are more opportunities for people to uh, actually um, get, get jobs at make use of their creativity and, and actually get some compensation thing. Yeah. 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 It's, it's definitely a good thing. And, you know, I have seen conlangers getting jobs out of the, the, the jobs board, mm -hmm. uh, join the language creation society. If you want to have access to those jobs early enough to actually apply for them, <laughs> because it's, uh, they go quick. It's, it's, it's pretty competitive because there's a lot of people who want to do that. Um, and it's sort of a, a fight to like make sure that to direct people through the jobs board so that the jobs board can negotiate decent pay for, for these projects right. too, because you know, um, so do you still get contacted for projects yeah. or are you, um, yeah. I'll, Are you thinking that you would? Hmm? Yeah. On occasion, someone will contact me. Uh, and uh, if it's if it's something that uh, that sounds like it would be interesting and something that would fit into my schedule and something that I would enjoy doing, then I might accept it. Or I might say, you know, I really appreciate it. But um, right now, I my plate's kind of full. And then I will direct it elsewhere. Right. I have directed people to the jobs board of the uh, Constructed Language Association, the, the CSA. Uh, there, there are other times when uh, I know of someone who I think would do a particularly good job at that particular right. project, and I will I will personally recommend someone like that. Uh, th there, right. there, there are. 
there are a number of things that uh, I was contacted contacted about, have been contacted about, uh, which sounded interesting, and uh, actually did a fair amount of preliminary work on it, and then they kind of fell through. But that's also very right. that, that's typical too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What what's what what can be a little irksome in those sorts of situations is that I've encountered situations where. Um, People have presented a project to me. It sounds very interesting. And uh, they will send me all sorts of preliminary material for me to look at and read, get involved in. And then there are sometimes a lot of extensive conversations uh, online and actually conferences and phone calls and so on. And you wind up putting in a fair amount of work for this. And then all of a sudden you discover, sometimes just from reading the newspaper, that the project has been abandoned, it did not get green-lighted, and it's not going to happen, mm-hmm. and you never hear from these people again. Now, I must say, uh, that has not been my experience with the Avatar people at all. They're extraordinarily considerate, and I consider myself very lucky about that. Yeah. But, uh, but it's, it's a little bit... Strange, just in terms of interpersonal reaction, to have put in a fair amount of work and talked to a lot of people and doing a lot of research for a project. And then all of a sudden, as soon as a project is a no-go, you never hear from these people again. You know, it's, it, 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 I don't know how, to, it, I have a feeling this may be fairly typical. So it's just something that mm-hmm. I think you have to sort of develop a thick skin about. Because if it were me... I would kind of expect people to say, hey, you know, Paul, uh, just want to let you know, uh, for these various reasons, unfortunately, the project's not going to happen. But, you know, we really appreciate the time that you put in. And thanks very much. And hopefully we'll be able to connect at some point in the future. That's sort of a human thing to do, right? Yeah. Because, right. because typically you put in all this work and there's been, you know, there's been no compensation at that point at all. Fine. Okay. But at least, you know, at least say thanks, you know. But just for, right. just for people to to sort of to go to ghost you at that point because there's no more funding for the project just just seems a little weird. Maybe I'm being old fashioned about that. Yeah, I, I mean, no, I I I totally agree with you, and that's that's something that happens all over the place yeah. um, in terms of like business relations. I think. Part of that is like the landscape of TV and movies that we're in right now. Shows get canceled just like right, like immediately or just like very suddenly get canceled. And like there may be, there may not be somebody who left who has the responsibility of contacting you. Right, true. Because the whole team is dissolved and like, I don't know, Conlangers end up, uh, in weird departments, I think David was was contacted by a video game sound sound director at uh-huh. one point. It's like I don't know if that's exactly the right person right. for the conlanger to be talking to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you uh, you definitely have a point, and uh, it, it's often that there may not be one particular person who has a responsibility. But you know, if it's someone that you've been speaking to on a regular basis. And they have the right. information that it's not going to go. Then you know, give the guy a call. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. 
I'm just yeah. a little bit. I mean, it, it's it's not that big a deal. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 really interesting to to see that you're still still going and still, you know, accepting projects here and there and and such. And I'm sure you're still going to be working on Avatar. <laughs> I hope so. There are um, to, there are three more sequels that are scheduled. Wow. Yeah. So the first sequel, yeah. you know, the, the, they've you know they've been kind of codenamed A1 through A5. So A1 was the original movie in 2009, and The Way of Water is A2. So three, four, and five have been scheduled. Um, three is coming out at the end of 2025. And then mm-hmm. uh, I forget the actual schedule for uh, the next two. But I will be uh, even longer in the tooth than I am right now, but hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll still be around. Hopefully I'll still be involved. So, uh, I mean, so, I mean, the, the movie series has like a set number that I think James Cameron managed to fund up front because I, because he's James, James Cameron, I guess. <laughs> but, um, like if it, continues beyond that could you see yourself like eventually like handing it off to people who have learned not v yeah. as like fans and stuff yeah uh, at, at well at some point uh it will be handed off to somebody yeah and exactly how that's going to happen is not entirely clear but you know i'm uh, uh it's no secret i just turned 79 you know i be eight oh next year, and so at some point, yeah. you know, I'm probably going to say, you know, I've, I think it's time to maybe maybe turn it over to somebody, and uh, right. that'll that'll happen at that point. But what's remarkable is that there are a lot of people, and I'm not going to say hundreds of people, but there's a fairly decent group of people who have embraced the language to the point where I could say they know it as well as I do. You know, now I'm still the gatekeeper. Mm-hmm. I'm still the only one who can say, okay, this this new vocabulary item is an official part of the language or it's not. But uh, there are people who are really using it in very creative ways. I mean, not just uh, emails and, 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 and text, but stories and poems and songs. It's really, it's really been very, very gratifying. Well, that's great. Um, that's, um, really, that's really exciting to, to think about, you know, this can keep on going and going. Um, and it's been great talking to you. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Most of our listeners are conlingers. Some of them might want to do it professionally. A lot of them might want to just continue it, doing it for themselves. But do you have any like advice, any anything that you would like to share with them yeah. before we go? Well, I mean, uh, first of all, I mean, it, it's one of, the, one of the great joys, I think, in the lives of people who love language to be able to, to, to actually create something of your own. Uh, I guess the biggest piece of advice would be uh, learn as much linguistics as you can. You know, really, really delve into how language works, how language functions. And in particular how languages differ from one to another, because I I, I think inevitably what happens is that 
either consciously or unconsciously, you wind up uh, thinking about the languages that you know and using structures that uh, that occur in the languages that you know. And so, getting uh, getting your 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 hands wet, so to speak, in a lot of different natural languages, so that you can get a sense of the different ways that language can handle various various linguistic tasks, right, uh, is an extremely useful thing. So, uh, you know, if, if you're someone who uh, is interested in conlanging and, and has studied Spanish and maybe has studied French, that's fantastic. But uh, you have to realize that when you study languages that are closely related, chances are they're going to do a lot of things in related ways. But in addition to uh, Spanish and French and Italian and Portuguese, which are fantastic languages, you know, how about Mandarin? How about a Native American language? You know, how about Thai or something like that? Those will give you more of a range or more of a sense of, of the very, very interesting things that languages can do. The, 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 the part of linguistics that wound up interesting me the most is, is ty uh, typology. And I actually did a dissertation right. um, under, and I was extraordinarily fortunate in having as my dissertation advisor, one of the world's greatest typologists, Bernard Comrie. Uh, and just the idea of looking at, 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 at languages and, and what could be a possible language and what is a probable language. Um, I just want to point out this book, which is really quite a wonderful resource. Um, Possible and Probable Languages by, um, by Fritz Neumeier, oh. um, who actually, uh, I, have, I, have a, I have a connection to him because we, uh, we were both in the same undergraduate class at the University of Rochester in New York, uh, class of 1965. Uh, what's what's okay. very interesting about this is that uh, in the early part of the book, he has lists of seemingly universal or universally non-occurring features of language. In other words, right. looking at natural languages, what are some things that every natural language does or no natural language can do? Okay, And when you know that kind of stuff, when you get a, you get a sense of, of what's possible and what's probable, then you can kind of think about what you want your language to be. Do you want it to be a very natural Earth-like language, easily learnable by humans, or is going to be an alien language that's going to do things that no human language has ever done and no humans could ever learn. So once you get a sense of that, then you have a, you know, you 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 can kind of think about what you what you want your language to be and make it as 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 wonderful and weird and and creative as possible. Well, so you have you have. Uh, thank you for that book recommendation, by the way. I will go and see if I can get that one. Um, but you have hit on the two things that I also tell conlangers to study is typology and then just grammars of lots of different languages, you know, of, and as broad ranging as you can get, you know, get, you know, major languages like, Spanish, French, Chinese, whatever, and also, you know, Australian Aboriginal languages, Native American languages, South American languages, exactly. all of them. 
and whatever whatever interests you, whatever you can get, study it. But uh, it's been great having you on, Paul. Thank you. And thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful to have had you on the show. And uh, I will that you it, did you have something else? No, I just want to say it's been a pleasure talking to you, George. Thanks very much. And uh, uh, I wish I uh, wish you and your audience happy conning. Special thanks to my patrons on Patreon. If you go over there right now, you can get early access to episodes. You can get access to scripts for my solo episodes. And you can go get access to exclusive polls for Tongues and Runes. Thank you to... Mintaka. Connor Stewart Rowe. Kenan Kigunda. Jesse, K, Viren Patrick, Alexis Hugelman, Anthony Dosimo, Artifexian, Cassandra Woodhouse, Greca Grunk, Grammar Antifa, Eloivar Yana Mentulam, Jack Keynes, Jake Penny, Miles Ronkovich, Nicholas Norblad, Sigourney Hunter, Sylvia Sotomayor, Wu Ming Shui. Con Langery's theme music is by Null Device. Con Langery is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial Share Alike 4.0 International License.